This is Africa Digest. Good evening and welcome to Africa Digest. You're listening to Channel Africa, giving you news from an African perspective. We're broadcasting to you from our studios in Johannesburg, South Africa, and we're online on www.channelafrica.co.za. My name is Samora Mangesi, driving the show with Onelenskinsino, Sitle Zuma and Neto Chimani. Top stories on Africa Digest at this hour. Political parties in South Africa divided on the appointment of Andre de Reiter as new CEO of the country's power utility. More than 30 Ethiopian children to benefit from life-saving heart operations from an Israeli-based international non-profit. In economics, Kenya's tea production f- fell by 8.5% in the first nine months of the year. And in sport, Anduk elected Zimbabwe Ladies Golf Union president at an annual meeting last weekend in Harare. But right now, let's cross on over to the news desk. Here's Onelinsinsi with your latest news bulletin. SABC News, independent and impartial. From an African perspective. Thank you, Samara. An Algerian court has jailed four protesters for 18 months for disrupting a candidate's campaign for the December 12th presidential election, which is opposed by mass protest movement. The court sentenced the four on Monday after the protest on Sunday. Algerian authorities are trying to quell a protest movement that erupted in February to demand the departure of the country's ruling hierarchy and end to corruption and the army's withdrawal from politics. The former president, Abdelaziz Bouteflika, quit in April. The judgment comes a week after a series of other prison sentences were handed down to protesters who had raised flags with Berber symbols during earlier demonstrations. The authorities in Burundi say an armed group from across the border in Rwanda has attacked its military. A Burundian army spokesperson said the attack happened before dawn on Sunday in a forest area near the border. No casualty figures were given, but opposition media reports says dozens of Burundian soldiers were killed. The Rwandan government dismissed the report as baseless. The Department of Home Affairs says South Africa cannot impose refugees on other countries. This follows the demand by some foreign nationals in Cape Town and Pretoria that they be sent to other countries, including Canada and Namibia, as they no longer want to be in South Africa. They also do not want to be returned to their countries of origin. Zuza says they have tried to engage with the refugees, but the refugees were not interested. He added that the refugees have asked for the police to escort them as they plan to march to Namibia. The Namibian government raised serious uh, you know, uh, concerns that they will be very unhappy if the South African government actually you know, uh, police people to their border and uh, they don't believe that will be right but if they arrive on their borders they will deal with each case uh, case by case to check if those people actually do qualify for 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 asylum or refugee status in uh, namibia 
Leaders meeting in Senegal for the Dakar International Forum on Peace and Security should seek strong measures to deal with the crisis in the Sahel region that go beyond military solution. That's according to the International Committee of the Red Cross. Close to 2.4 million people in Burkina Faso, Mali and Western Niger need humanitarian assistance. Patrick Youssef, the RCRC Deputy Director for Africa, says increasing numbers of armed groups in the Sahel region, as well as shrinking access for humanitarian groups, are putting lives at risk. There are more than 5 million people dependent on humanitarian assistance between Niger, Mali, and Burkina Faso. There are 1.2 million only in Burkina Faso who need assistance. The numbers of internally displaced have nearly doubled, 480% since the beginning of the year, where we're speaking today in Burkina Faso only about 500,000 displaced internally, only in the regions coming from the north where the pressure from the armed conflict in the, north, in the, in the Mali region has been pushing towards, uh, towards Burkina Faso. And lastly, the UN Human Rights Office has reaffirmed its long-standing position that Israeli settlements in occupied Palestinian territory and breach of international law, rejecting the Trump administration's revised position. The United States on Monday effectively backed Israel's right to build Jewish settlements in the occupied West Bank by abandoning its four-decade-long position that they were inconsistent with international law. The international, the United Nations rather, says a change in the policy position of one state does not modify existing international law, nor its interpretation by the International Court of Justice and the UN Security Council. Channel Africa News, I am SABC News, independent and impartial. From an African perspective. Political parties in South Africa are divided on the appointment of Andre de Reiter as the new CEO of the country's parastatal ESCOM, while the ruling party, the ANC, and opposition parties, the Democratic uh, A and uh, the Democratic Alliance and IFP, say they will back the new CEO, and the EFF has labeled the appointment as racist. De Reiter's first task will be to restore the integrity of the electricity generation infrastructure to eliminate load shedding. For analysis on the appointment of De Reiter, here's Darvi Root, chief economist at Efficient Group. Uh, w- without a doubt, his name was not even mentioned anywhere, and this really came as a huge surprise to me. There were a couple of other guys that we thought may be appointed as the new boss of ESCOM, but uh, Mr. De Reiter, he came as a total surprise. In fact, I don't know that mm. much. About, about him, sure, yeah. and I think uh, that is the sentiment of many people, um, uh, Davi, around um, them not knowing so much about this guy who's taking such an important uh, position. Now, we've seen that um, he is, of course, no stranger to turnaround strategies, uh, but uh, can one look at, at NAMPAC and compare it to ESCOM? Yeah, no, certainly. Well, you can in a way because all businesses are all businesses, and if you're a good manager, my view is that you can basically run anything. And I know there's some criticism that he hasn't got an engineering background and that makes him unsuitable, according to some, uh, to fill this specific position. I disagree with that. I think that if you're a good manager, uh, then you can basically manage anything. All you need to do is to make sure that you get the necessary expertise to support you in what you need to happen. 
And having said that, if you look at the challenges at ESCOM, the challenges at ESCOM at the moment is not necessarily engineering. Of course, that is some of the challenges. But the major challenges at ESCOM are things like, for example, finance and personnel. And the most important one, I guess, is simply politics. Uh, you did mention uh, his background at, at NAMPAC, mm-hmm. and he's no stranger to, to turnaround strategies. I spoke to our analysts here sure. that know the business in NAMPAC, and that is indeed the case. Uh, and he did go through a couple of difficult times there. But according to our analysts, that he's done actually a good job in setting all these turnaround strategies that he implemented at NAMPAC. So despite the mm-hmm. share price coming under some pressure, apparently he's got a good background at NAMPAC. But the most important thing is we need strong leadership and as far as I could determine, he is uh, certainly somebody with the necessary quality leadership that is required at ESCOM. Well, of course, we know that it's not everyone who feels like that, uh, Davi. A lot of political parties are having responded to this appointment. To EFF coming out guns blazing, labeling this appointment as a racist one. What are your thoughts on that? I don't, I'm not going to comment on, on the EFA, but I think what, what we all need to understand, that this is very important for everybody to understand, is that ESCOM is, very, is absolutely crucial to the South African economy. Uh, without ESCOM, we will not have an economy. ESCOM is very, very deep in trouble. Not only ESCOM, the state, the civil service, is really under tremendous pressure as far as finances are concerned. And I don't think this is the place to play politics. Uh, I think what we need to do, and I do not know if he's the best candidate, as far as I, like I've just said, I don't know that much about him, but, uh, but as far as I'm concerned, it is of the utmost importance at this stage to put all political disagreements to the side and to get a good person to run ESCOM. We mm. cannot, we simply cannot afford this kind of infighting. We need to get ESCOM up and running again because without that, we are all going to be poor in this country. We must fix ESCOM. That mm. must be one of the first priorities. And it doesn't matter what the color of the person that runs it, as long as that person can do the job. What should be the first thing on his to-do list? So I'm afraid I was worried about this question. I think <laughs> the first thing is, and the reason why I was worried about this, this question is because I think much of the blame for Rick Eskom is today must be put before the door of our political leadership. And I must mention one person specifically, and that is Praveen Gordon. Praveen Gordon mm. overruled the decision made by the board of ESCOM last year, and Tavin Gordon is the reason why Pakanami uh, they resigned at ESCOM. And also, uh, some of the resignations that we've seen in South African Airways, as an example. The point I'm making, there was political interference at ESCOM, and that's and in South African Airways, and other state-owned enterprises, and that's why the leadership, competent leadership, resigned at those institutions. That will be Mr. Gareth's first challenge. Will he be in a position we can tell the politicians, I am in charge now. You put your confidence in me. Allow me to run the, jobs and the job and please do not interfere. That, without a doubt, must be his first challenge. Thereafter, mm-hmm. uh, I think the, third, the, the second challenge will be to address uh, 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 personnel. There are some major personnel issues that need to be addressed at ESCOM. Exactly the same kind of issues that is currently uh, being uh, discussed at South African Airways. There are just too many people at ESCOM. They're simply too expensive, and we need to do something about that. And that's going to be extremely difficult to handle for the new leadership. And that was Davi Ruet, Chief Economist at Efficient Group, on the line talking to Zekonomiso. It is all systems go for the highly anticipated France-Africa 2020 summit to be held in Bordeaux, port city of southwestern France, next year June. The summit aims to develop new long-term partnerships between the two regions with the shared 
uh, ambition of building lasting innovative urban ecosystems that stimulate maximum economic activity for minimum investment uh, while accelerating the establishment of a structure integrating the economic sectors that form sustainability. Channel Africa's Kumbelo Mujelele sat down with the Secretary General of the upcoming summit, Stephanie Revol, and he began by asking her about the importance of the conference and why it will focus on sustainable cities. The theme was uh, the one picked by uh, President Macron when he gave a speech in uh, Burkina Faso in Ouagadougou in, uh, in 2017. As you know, it's one of the sustainable development goals. It's number 11. So we all have, all together, all the countries of the world, we have to comply and, and make it real. The sustainable goals are for everyone. One of them is sustainable cities. I think he picked it, I'm not in his head, but I think it's a very valid topic because when you look at urbanization, when you look at the demographics of the African countries, it has to be addressed and we need to put all our heads together to build these cities everywhere in France, in Africa, everywhere in the world in a more sustainable way. So I believe that's how it came about. It's also, I have to say, um, to, to discuss something different from other summits that Africa and France held together, which were based mostly on peace and security and, and this type of topic. This one is about addressing the cities to make them better. So it has a very positive outlook. How can we find solutions and they have to deal with business, with civil society, with uh, the youth of Africa. So I think it's also a very practical and concrete topic to have in a summit. It made things very real. Secondly, why Bordeaux and not Paris? Well, because many things are taking place in Paris already. A lot of people have seen Paris and Paris is a capital. So it would have been like we want to talk only about addressing issues of capitals and it's the opposite. We want to talk about intermediate cities down to village level because I believe personally, and uh, I believe I'm not the only one, that if you have people stay in intermediate cities, in a territory, in a country, because they find a job, because they have access to essential services, but also education and health and sport and culture, maybe they're not going to move to the capital for economic reason, and not finding what they wanted to have there, meaning jobs, so they're then going to move away from the country, and African countries are going to use what they, they should cherish most, which is the, the human capital, the people. So I believe if we talk about intermediate cities and territories, then we can all together see how investments can be made in capitals, but also in smaller down to village level to make the lives of the people there better so that they don't have to move without their own consent. This uh, summit comes at an opportune time as the African continent is facing unprecedented population growth in cities. Uh, what will happen to the ideas and issues to be discussed at this summit because it's well and good to discuss the issues but it's another to implement uh, those issues as you say it is the solution uh, forecast summit what will happen to the outcomes of this summit i think you said something very important the french people were very big on discussing like many many nations but this one is not going to be so much about discussing concepts it's going to be about discussing projects, but more than discussing showcasing. So we're going to have a trade fair. There's no more practical and concrete than a trade fair because people pay to be there and they make a selection. So they come to show sometimes their products, but I don't want them to come and show their products. I want them to come and show their projects and their solutions. So this trade fair is not going to be uh, all the companies and their big names, but it's more going to be in seven districts built like a city and one district is going to be water and, and 
energy and renewable energy and infrastructure, waste management. Another one is going to be mobility. Another one is going to be digital. Another one is going to be feeding the cities. Another one is going to be embellishing and, and making the, the city better from an architectural standpoint. And another one is going to be living in the city, access to education and so on. So people are going to, to be there in their respective districts from all over Africa. So it's not going to be the South African business on one hand and looking at the Moroccan pavilion on the other hand. There's going to be meets and match of everyone, meets and match of big groups, SMI, civil society, all from across Africa and France saying, okay, this is what I'm suggesting in terms of water management. This is what I'm offering in terms of mobility in a green way. This is what I can do in access to health uh, on territories. So that's a very practical, concrete angle we're taking. They're going to be conferences, but that's not the first thing I say when I describe this summit. I'm, de I'm describing the project and the trade fair first, and then we can have conferences. But I'm going to be very strict on the conferences. You want to talk about the project that you've done. You want to tell the process on how you achieved it. And that's what you talk about. You don't talk about concepts, you talk about reality, to change the lives of the people on a very concrete and real way. The summit comes as uh, a competition from China and other players for the African market is rife and also at a critical juncture for France amid fears of recession. There's also a prevailing school of thought that Paris is handicapped because of its reputation as a former colonial power which will make it difficult to convince in particular young people and African entrepreneurs. How do you respond to this? I can change the history of France. Uh, uh, and African countries. It happened. I mean, colonization happened, decolonization happened, and that was uh, 50 years ago. I was not born. I'm, I'm, I'm younger than that. So I have to own as a French person this history, but I also do not fully own it because I'm not, I didn't make it happen. So it happened, but let's look in the future and let's see what we can do with it. And this is exactly what the President Macron uh, said in many different ways. We don't, the shame is not a positive sentiment. The memory, the remembrance is, is very important. No one shall ever forget. But what do we do with it? What we do with it is we celebrate the human ties that were at the, at the subsequent of decolonization. Many African French people still have families in their African uh, countries and they, they are bridges between our countries. Stephanie Revol, Secretary General of the 2020 Africa France Summit, talking to Kumbero Monjalele. Across the globe, every second, there's always a breaking story. What we want to achieve is a healthy and vibrant economy, which can ensure full employment to our people. The government concurs with the views of the black economic empowerment council report that it is now necessary to make our policies on black economic empowerment more explicit. Last May, I asked constituencies at NETLEC to discuss youth employment incentives. I'm pleased that discussions have been concluded and that agreement has been reached on key principles. We are on an ambitious drive to industrialize, to attract investment, and to create more jobs for the youth of our country. They don't have jobs. I've tried looking for a job for it's a year and a half now. The challenges were experience and the, the level of education which I have. Channel Africa. 
While the economic challenges of recent years have caused a marginal decline in the proportion of South Africa's high net worth individuals who are involved in philanthropic uh, activities, the average value of such philanthropy, rather, by those who are still giving has increased. In addition, the demographics of those involved in giving are changing and becoming steadily more diverse. These are just some of the key findings of the 2018 Giving Report, a uh, biennial research document produced by the Philanthropy Office of Nedbank Private Wealth, which provides in-depth insight into key philanthropy uh, trends, developments and motivations amongst high net worth individuals across the country. Ntlantla Masango reports. NetBank's private wealth office has revealed its latest research findings about high net worth giving in South Africa's current economic climate. The Giving Report is a unique piece of research that analyzes the giving behaviors, patterns and trends of high net worth South Africans. It also gives a comprehensive analysis and insights into individual philanthropy in South Africa during 2018. More on the findings from Nokolo Shongwani, Head of Philanthropy at NetBank Private Wealth. This 2019 giving report, which looks at the giving behaviours and practices of high net worth individuals, um, has um, shown us that since we started the research in 2010, giving by high net worth individuals has been trending down um, from 94% in 2010 to 83% in 2018 for the giving year of 2018. And that is not surprising given the economic climate that we find ourselves in. What is interesting and encouraging is we are finding for the first time since we started the survey in 2010, the sample of individuals surveyed or interviewed includes more women, almost a 50-50 split for the first time ever, as well as diversity in terms of race, leaning towards more African and Indian. Furthermore, although they are less givers, those that are giving are giving more. So the pool of total giving has increased. Professor Mamogheti Pakeng, Vice-Chancellor at the University of Cape Town, was a keynote speaker at the release of the report. She says she has first-hand experience of what giving does for the next person. The inequalities in our country are staggering. And so those of us who have, have to do something to make sure that we contribute to alleviating poverty and giving opportunity to people who don't have. I would not be comfortable if I only focus on my comfort. If others around me are poorer, less educated, don't have the advantages that I have, I will not be comfortable. And so I think each one of us should give. It's also for our peace, you know. We will never have peace until each one of us is comfortable in this country. With the levels of poverty that we have, we will have to contend with shutdown after shutdown until everyone at least has got a meal, has got shelter, They've got their basic needs are covered. Bongiwe Mlangeni from the Social Justice Initiative, an organization which mobilizes resources for social justice work in South Africa, has cautiously welcomed the report. I think that the report is showing us that there is an increase in the amounts that philanthropists are giving or high net worth philanthropists are giving and I think that's positive but we have to look at where the funds are going 
So while it is very encouraging that philanthropies are concerned about social development, particularly vulnerable children and the elderly, it is also a concern that um, they are least invested in strengthening our democracy and accountable governance as well as social justice, that they invest less in those initiatives. That was Bongi Wimlangeni from the Social Justice Initiative reporting for Channel Africa. I'm Antla Masangu in Johannesburg. More than 30 Ethiopian children are to benefit from life-saving heart uh, operations and cardiac catheterization from Save a Child's Heart, an Israeli-based international non-profit. The SASH's team have been working around the clock in the week-long mission. For more on this, we're joined on the line by Simon Fisher, Executive Director of SASH. Simon, thank you very much for joining us. Um, It's a a pleasure to be with you this evening. Now, Simon, this is only a week-long mission. How often is something like this done, and how often would you guys like for it to be done? Um, uh, we, we, we carry out medical um, missions, um, I would say, on average um, three times a year. At present, um, we, we are putting together uh, medical teams from the Wilson Medical Center, um, just outside of Tel Aviv in Israel, um, which run pretty regularly in the past few years to, to Tanzania. Um, but we're working with a full-fledged um, cardiac team. Um, and now we are hoping to introduce them to the activities of Save the Child also the work here um, at the Children's Heart Fund of Ethiopia. Um, having trained an Ethiopian heart surgeon in Israel for five years. Um, and, you know, growingly, the the relationship um, strengthening with both the Children's Heart Fund in Ethiopia and the Ethiopian um, Ministry of Health with a view of working in partnership with the Cardiac Center here to to strengthen and increase um, the number of um, patients treated um, local here in, in Ethiopia. So um, all being well, this is going to be a, a, a tradition um, that is going to uh, become a, 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 on an annual basis, on a regular basis, hopefully once or twice a year. Now, Simon, we've uh, mentioned Ethiopia quite a few times. Do you focus on any other countries except for Ethiopia? If not, um, are you guys willing to broaden uh, these horizons? Yeah, yeah, with, with greatest pleasure. Um, you know, um, as we said, um, Ethiopia is where we are at now, but we're saying the, the activities in, in Tanzania um, have picked up, and I would say definitely championing the activities that we're carrying out in, in Africa. Um, at present, in Israel, we're also training a, a heart surgeon from, um, from Lusaka, from Zambia. This is part of a partnership with uh, uh, the Ministry of Health of Zambia with a view of also strengthening and developing a, a, a team um, which can um, uh, begin treating uh, children in Zambia independently. There's a very good um, relationship there with the University Hospital in Lusaka and um, together with the Minister of Health. Um, we've most recently also embarked on a program um, in uh, Kigali, in Rwanda as well, out there working closely with the Ministry of Health. At present, the program there is focusing on... Um, bringing children to Israel for heart surgery, 
but we are also exploring the possibilities of developing an ongoing relationship, which will also include both infrastructure and capacity building um, uh, for the Ministry of Health. Again, our objective being um, treating children um, suffering from heart disease and um, alleviating the, the pressure that the ministries have in, a, in such a way that in the, in the long run, similar to what we're, we've achieved in Tanzania, the waiting list is going to be shorter and shorter, and we'll be in a position to treat um, many more children locally based on, um, on local capacity, whether it's in Tanzania, in uh, Ethiopia, in Zambia, or in Rwanda. I mean, the, the objective is not to have foreign teams come in and work locally, but the idea is that um, African teams are taking care of their own children in their respective countries, and as their, their programs grow and develop, uh, we will be part of an international effort, not only Center the Child's Heart, but other organizations from countries around the world, which help and um, reduce the pressure because the numbers are tremendous as the teams on the ground um, develop and strengthen. And in recent years, we've also visited and looked at the opportunities of doing um, work also in, um, in the Gambia, in West Africa, um, and in, uh, in Senegal. Um, and we are currently also exploring, uh, this is a level of discussion, activity and work in, uh, in, in, in the Ivory Coast. So I think that probably gives a, a good account um, of the overall activities throughout Africa. Uh, again, um, also been exploring in, in the past, yet there is nothing um, in place just now um, in, in Kenya and uh, Nairobi. Now, Simon, lastly, you have mentioned that uh, there are doctors or surgeons there in training, and, and one of the ones that we, we know of is, of course, Yair Yirad Mekoneng Ejigu. But there are other foreign doctors that you are training at the medical center. Could you also tell us how one would get involved in what you're doing? Um... Well, um, I, I, I would say getting involved is, uh, it, there are different levels of involvement. I mean, at any given time, we're bringing children to Israel to undergo life-saving procedures. So it's heart surgery and catheterization, and that today, in terms of the challenge for Save the Child Heart, that's one of our greatest challenges in terms of seeking the funds that we are required in order to, to, to cover the cost. I mean, we'd be more than happy if um, people come on board from different communities and are involved and are willing to, to, to give and give generously. At the same time, we're also in, engaging volunteers um, who are happy to come to Israel, learn about our beautiful country, and also lend a hand with the children who are in Israel and are uh, undergoing um, medical treatment. At the same time, mm-hmm. When we talk about the, the programs that we have on the ground in uh, Africa, um, the, the programs are, are led in each one of the respective countries by a, a, a hospital under the local Ministry of Health, and the activities um, are led by the Ministry of Health under um, leadership of a you know, designated hospital. Yes. And um, in that respect, um, in each of the countries, um, the, the focal point would be on um, the director of the hospital 
um, uh, and the Ministry of Health, mm-hmm. um, and they they will um, communicate with say the child partner to pick and choose the relevant uh, medical practitioners that they feel can benefit from training programs in Israel. And so obviously to be available of, of training programs uh, at any given time. And mm. at present in Israel, um, we have a, a group of physicians training with us from Tanzania, a group of physicians training with us from um, um, Ethiopia, and as I mentioned, a heart surgeon um, from Zambia. And yes. we're hoping to be able to open our doors in the Well, in I mean, the Simon, it sounds like a lot is happening at the moment. Physicians from both Zambia um, and um, Rwanda. I would say in the next few years, that is probably going to be our focus. Um, um, uh, Tanzania, Ethiopia, um, and Rwanda, um, and Zambia. All right. Uh, Simon, thank you very much for joining us. And that was uh, Simon Fisher. Thank you for having that was Simon Fisher, Executive Director of Save a Child's Heart. But right now, it's time for us to cross on over to the news desk for a very quick update with regards to the headlines. SABC News, independent and impartial. From an African perspective. An armed group from across the border in Rwanda has attacked a military base in Burundi. An Algerian court has jailed four protesters for 18 months for disrupting a candidate's campaign for the December 12th presidential election. And leaders meeting in Senegal for the Dakar International Forum on Peace and Security seek strong measures to deal with the crisis in the Sahel region. Channel Africa News, I'm Onelens Inzi. SABC News, independent and impartial. From an African perspective. A task team from the South African Medical Association, SAMA, has met with the country's health minister, William Kize, to present a plan to better deal with the attack and killing of patients in healthcare facilities. This follows incidences of violence and crime in some of the country's facilities. SAMA says the situation regarding safety and security, especially in public hospitals, has reached crisis levels. To discuss this further, we're joined on the line by Dr. Mzulundile Notikita, a board member of SAMA. Doctor, thank you very much for joining us. What are some of the serious security incidences that have been reported in healthcare facilities across the country in the f- past few months? Okay, so we've got three major ones, but uh, there's quite a lot that has been happening before the three. The one which happened a week ago uh, on a a Sunday, it was a a patient who was stabbed outside, came into the hospital, and uh, while doctors were busy trying to put up a chest strain on the patient, a somebody walked in and said he wanted to finish the patient up. And uh, he started stabbing the patient to death right in front of the doctor. So so that was the first one. This happened in the Eastern Cape. Mm-hmm. And uh, then I think about, on I think last Friday, last Friday there was an incident in Bumalanga in one of the hospitals, the Makuleng Hospital where security guards tried to stop uh, gangsters from walking into the hospital and got shot. But then 
on the 16th, we sat as the chairpersons of SAMA from around the country. And uh, we were discussing this issue, saying that we need to speak with the minister and basically to tell the minister that it was time that we changed the way we guard hospitals. On the evening of the same day, we took the decision. We got uh, information that uh, a patient was shot dead in an orthopedic ward in the vet bank hospital in Bumala. Mm. Now, how does this threaten the attainment of the dream of universal health coverage? So our view is that, f- firstly, there's a problem in South Africa with recruiting uh, skilled personnel into the public sector. There's a competition first. You've got the public sector competing with the public sector. That's the one thing. The second thing is that areas with high violent crime will never be attractive to any skilled professional. So it looks like the hospitals for some time, I don't know whether it was a community issue, they were a safe haven. You take a person to a hospital is safe. And most of the doctors actually stay inside the hospital. So there's something called the doctor's quarters. So there's an accommodation for the doctors and for the nurses. Now, if those places are not safe, then you have a serious problem to attract doctors. Mm. The other thing is that doctors take an oath to do no harm. The primary responsibility of a doctor is to their patient. Their, our members are in the business of saving lives. Now, if the very same patients that we're supposed to save are not safe in government facilities, that creates a problem. The primary responsibility is patient safety. And it, in South Africa, it's domain number two of the national cost standards. So, so, so this is what we discussed with the minister yesterday, that there has to be a way to change the way in which hospitals are guarded. Mm. Now, does the country have any national guidelines on how the health facilities should be protecting workers, patients, and the property? Okay. So, so what we have at the moment is that they are not, it's just a framework that says hospitals are gun free zones. So, and this, this is how they've been carrying hospitals for a long time. So the security guards that are at the gate have no guns. They, surprisingly, even in the high crime rate areas, they don't have a, an armed response. They don't have panic buttons to press. So our view is that the police release crime statistics almost every year. And at the moment, we're sitting with hot spots areas. We have discussed with the minister that those hot spot areas must be guarded by either police with satellite police stations or police patrolling. Or we must have the security company that is guarding the hospital must have an armed response. So inside the hospital, people must be able to press panic buttons when they see that uh, situations are escalating. But what makes us comfortable, though, after the meeting with the minister, is to find out that the minister has actually started a process to engage. He has formed a team with the made up of heads of departments and some of his officials at national to look into the ways hospitals are guarded. And he, he has committed to meet up with the police minister.
mm. so that so that we can start talking about these satellite uh, police stations or at least patrols. Mm. And what were some of the outcomes of the meeting with the minister this week regarding this issue? So we called the agent meeting yesterday with the minister. I remember, the minister was out of the country, but when he arrived, we called an agent meeting, and he responded. So we met the minister at around half past seven yesterday. And uh, in the meeting on crime, because there were other issues that we discussed, but on this thing of safety in hospitals, we've agreed that there has to be a follow-up meeting in two days because the minister's got his own task team that is looking into this. And they are also considering now putting armed, uh, what to call it, security guards in hotspot areas, right? They, so they, with this concurrence there. They're also saying that they, they, they want to, he wants to speak to the Minister of Police to see if these hospitals cannot be guarded. Uh, this is a, media, a short to medium term plan. But in terms of the long-term plan, which we are willing to participate in summer, is to make sure that there's what is called community mobilization. Because remember, in our statement, we were clear that if communities do not demonstrate that they will protect patients and they will protect healthcare workers, then we'll have no option but to take patients out of unsafe communities into nearby hospitals that are safe so that they can receive the care that they are supposed to receive. So there's concurrence with the minister on these two issues. That first of all, as, as a short to medium term, is that we must get co- access control must be strict at the gate of the hospital, especially when you are inside the hospital. It must be very strict to the areas where the patients are being treated. This is the casualty area and the wards where patients are sleeping. So there has to be layers of control before you can get into where the patients are treated. So we found each other there with the minister. The what is left now is that we're supposed to meet, um, I'm suspecting, uh, on Friday with the task team that the minister has got on safety and security in hospitals. Now, a lot of the time we find that there's a lot of talk, especially in South Africa, with issues that are affecting people, especially those who are probably of a lower income bracket. No, you can't have talk here. Yes. On this issue, you just cannot have talk. We're so, very clear. You, you can't have talk here. We have to... In fact, Sama has to play the monitoring part. Mm. That whatever is being agreed upon is, is practice. I can confidently tell you that in the Eastern Cape, where this patient was stabbed, I got reports that they have started to put in panic buttons. Mm-hmm. The company that is heading the... The, that is guarding the hospital is actually one of the companies that is guarding another bigger hospital there, where they've got armed guards. So, so already there's a there's a there's a, a response because we've taken it away from the provincial embassies. This thing mm. we need the minister to take responsibility here and tell his embassies that this cannot be tolerated. We know that crime is a societal issue. Yes. We don't have a problem with that, but it can never be allowed to spill over to hospitals. Mm. Hospitals are places of safety. Hospitals are places where people are supposed to get life. Now, we cannot, we just cannot accept this. Well, I'm very glad that we do have an association like Sama who is uh, going to be holding them accountable, especially uh, in, 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 in this current climate that we are seeing. No, 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 no. We just cannot accept this. 
the minister, we were very clear with the minister. In fact, I think if it, the outcomes of our meetings with the minister have mm-hmm. to become public, have to become public, so that we are also held accountable by our members. Yes. Because this is about their lives. These guys have spent four or seven years in medical schools. Some of them are highly qualified specialists. Now, they, their job is to save lives. Now, they can't lose those lives on the hands of the, of the criminals. That is unacceptable. Mm. Mm. Well, Doctor, thank you very much for joining us. No, thank you very much for you too, for inviting us. Thank you. All right, and that was Dr. Mzulindile Notikita, a board member of the South African Medical Association, talking very passionately uh, about the uh the problems that we're seeing facing uh the country at the moment especially following incidences of violence and crime in some of the country's facilities but right now the time is 17:44 central african time right after this we'll be crossing straight on over to the economics desk where nostalgia zuma is standing by to give you your latest economics news Just a reminder, Spotlight Africa, a feature program that showcases and highlights African issues from an African perspective, can be heard every Wednesday at 1000 hours UCT, with repeats on Wednesday at 2000 hours, Thursday at 300 hours, and Sunday at 1300 hours UCT. Listen to Spotlight Africa a program that interrogates issues from an African perspective. Spotlight Africa. And now it's time for your economics news. Thank you, Samara. Good evening. I'm Nusitia Zuma. Acting Chief Executive Officer at SAA, Zooks Ramasia, says SAA has continued to incur a number of costs as a result of the ongoing strike by workers. She says loose losses range from denied boarding compensation to loss of future ticket sales. She says the airline cannot afford to meet the union's demands on an 8% increase. She says the national carrier is still trying to source funding from lenders as it is still sitting with millions of dollars in debt. Ramasia says SAA will continue to engage unions at a meeting taking place later today. Ramasia was addressing the media in Kempton Park. The cost of, of the company in the industrial consists of many things, including the claims from customers, the loss of average daily revenue, the loss of future sales tickets, the aircrafts themselves that are being parked because aircrafts make money when they are airborne than when they are uh, parked. And the cargo revenue, we have losses there. The income of losses to those pilots, cabin crew, ground staff, and everybody who's not on strike, they are losing revenue. Ramasia also confirmed that all international flights and a limited number of regional flights are back in the air despite the strike. Today, SAA is resuming flights to the sixth destination on the African continent, namely... We are starting to, uh, to go to Accra, to go to Lagos, Lusaka, Maputo, Venduk, and Harare. 
Those are the flights that we are operating. Those are the original flights as from today. Would like to confirm as well to our customers traveling on this destination that they are being rebooked on these reinstated flights and we're in a process of notifying them all accordingly. The Democratic Republic of Congo's Prime Minister Sylvester Ilunga Ilungamba has presented the 2020 budget proposal to the National Assembly. The 10 billion US dollars budget proposal focused on improving the DRC people's social conditions was discussed by MPs on Monday. The Prime Minister will be back on Wednesday to answer the MPs' questions and get the Assembly's decision. Prime Minister explains that the 2020 budget proposal is mainly focused on the improvement of social conditions of the people of the DRC. The focus is on social expenses that take 30.1% of the general budget, 21.8% for the education, 5.9% for health and 24 for social promotion. The free of charge education takes 11.3% of the general budget in 2020. The leaders of 12 African countries are meeting German Chancellor Angela Merkel in Berlin, Germany, for discussions on boosting business investment in Africa. They will take part in the Compact for Africa Conference, an initiative set up during the G20 in 2017 to promote private sector investment in Africa. The BBC's Damien Magini's report. Until a few years ago, Africa was not a top priority for Berlin, but then Germany was hit by the refugee crisis. In 2015, almost a million asylum seekers arrived in Germany, many of them from Africa. It suddenly hits home that poverty and conflict in Africa can have a direct impact on Europe. Since then, Angela Merkel's government has launched a number of projects to improve African economies, including more than a billion dollars in loans and support for African businesses and in help for German firms looking to invest in Africa. Looking at your financial indicators, the US dollar is trading at 359.76 Nigerian Nara, 10.74 Buzona Bula, at 100 Kenyan shilling, 73 cents, and at 13.87 Zambian Kwacha. In big currencies, one US dollar will cost you 4.19 Brazilian roll, 63.78 Russian ruble, 71.63 Indian rupee, 7.01 Chinese yuan, and at 14.75 South African rand. The US dollar is also trading at 77 pence to the British pound and at 90 cents to the euro. Looking at commodities, gold is trading at $1,469 and platinum at $895 per ounce. The price of Brent crude oil is $62.27 a barrel. For Channel Africa News, I'm Nusikhe Zuma. Latest sport, here's Neto Chmani. Thank you, Samara, from the sports desk. A very good afternoon.
Starting off with football news. South Africa's Under-23 national football team are currently competing in the Africa Under-23 Cup of Nations in Egypt, are just 90 minutes away from sealing their place at next year's Olympic Games in Tokyo. Hosts Egypt stand between South Africa and a place in the final of the Continental Showpiece, where they could face either Ghana or a rematch with Ivory Coast on Friday. Coach David Notwane's side kicked off the tournament 10 days ago, with a total of just 13 players due to Tlapa versus country challenges, but proceeded against all odds through a tough group, which also contained Zambia and Nigeria. Not one says this is a big game for them that will give them an opportunity to achieve their goal of a ticket to the Olympics and to reach the final and win the championship. Of course, we are used to the El Salam Stadium. It's nice to be at Cairo Stadium. Uh, coming to the match against the... Uh, Egypt, of course, uh, big game for us. Uh, a game that gives us an opportunity uh, to achieve what we came here for, which is to go to the Olympics and, of course, uh, to go to the final and uh, win the championship. So we play against a team that we know very well, and I'm sure they know us very well, having come here before in a practice match. And uh, I think uh, we both benefited from the practice match. It's good that we are both uh, in the semifinals. South African under-23 captain Tetius Malepe says they have done their homework against their opponents and tournament hosts Egypt. Very important game for us, and uh, it's a game whereby uh, we need to win, of course, uh, to buy our tickets to Tokyo, and of course to give ourselves a chance to be in the finals. So it is very important for us and of course uh, up to so far we've been working so hard. We know a bit about Egypt. Remember two weeks ago we were here to dramatize as a team, to know Egypt better, what is it about. And of course uh, we, we, we profiled a couple of their players. It is a good team. It's not going to be an easy game for us. But uh, we're looking out for the game and I believe we're ready at the moment because uh, we've been working off the field. You know, analyzing them, profiling individuals. SA Under-23 goalkeeper Darren Johnson also reflected on his team's performance prior to their much-anticipated semi-final encounter against the home of the pyramids, Egypt. It's, it's truly great. I'm truly honored to be one of the goalkeepers with um, the most amount of clean sheets in the tournament. Um, I have to give credit to my defenders, my midfielders, my attackers, because if it wasn't for them, I wouldn't have been sitting here today with all the clinches that I have. Um, first of all, there's, there's, there's no opponent that we, we don't give um, credit to. So going into them, um, I don't think there's anyone in particular that we're scared of. Um, I think we're going we're gonna to just go out there and do our best. Kickoff between Egypt and South Africa is at 8 p.m. Central African time. On to rugby news. World Cup winning Springbok winning Cheslin Colby wants to play for the Bliss Box at the 2020 Olympic Games in Tokyo. The 26-year-old won a bronze medal at the 2016 Olympics in Rio de Janeiro, but has since then focused on the 15-man rugby with his club Toulouse and with the Springboks. He was honored by French rugby publication Midi Olympique, Olympique at a function on Monday night when he won the World Player of the Year at the Newspapers Award. Awards. The 2020 Olympics gets underway on July the 24th. And finally in tennis news, 
Andy Murray is, well, is a welcome addition to Britain's Davis Cup team, but there is no guarantee the former world number one will play in the singles team, Captain Leon Smith has said. Murray, has, who underwent hip surgery in January, won the European Open in Antwerp last month, but the three-time Grand Slam champion is the lowest-ranked singles player in the British team, at 126 behind Dan Evers at 42 and Kyle Edmund at 69. The 32-year-old Murray is to his way back into professional tennis by playing doubles, partnering with his older brother Jamie in, wa- in Washington earlier this year. Jamie said they would have to wait and see if they would pair up again in Madrid. Thank you for choosing Channel Africa. For Channel Africa Sport, I'm Neto and Ito Chamani. This is Africa Digest. And that wraps up this hour of Africa Digest. Be sure to join us again in an hour's time from 1900 hours Central African time. But in the meantime, should you have any comments on the show, be sure to send us an email to info at channelafrica.co.za or send us a WhatsApp to plus 27763003327 or you can tweet us at channelafrica1. 